Welcome to the Venture Church Podcast. This sermon is from the life of the church. For more messages like this, please see our website www.venturechurch.co.za. We hope you enjoy this message. When my kids were growing up, I would sometimes take them out for a milkshake and a chat. And uh, the boys especially learned to call those chats awkward chats. Because they were the times when I took the opportunity to talk about what it means to be a man as opposed to just a male, or what it meant to be, in the case of my daughter, a woman, and especially a woman of God, as opposed to just being female. But they were, they were not necessarily easy conversations either to give or to hear. And that's why my kids often uh, dub them as awkward conversations. I still have these, these memories of saying, hey, don't you want to come and have a milkshake with me? Thinking I'm being the subtlest dad ever. And the first question is, is it going to be one of those awkward conversations? And it was awkward not because it was untrue or invaluable, or invaluable, unvaluable, not valuable, it was awkward because they were things that, that, that were, in a sense, deep and intensely personal. And this morning, I'm kind of feeling like I need to have one of those uh, slightly awkward conversations. Not because what I want to talk about is inherently embarrassing or bad, not because I'm needing to correct us on anything, but simply because it's a topic that we find difficult to talk about and we find difficult to submit fully to the things of God. So uh, part of what I want to talk about, Richard Foster wrote a a great book on uh, quite a few years ago. And if you've got it in your Kindle bookshelf or if you still love treeware, somewhere on your shelf at home, I encourage you, if you haven't read it yet, it is still worth reading. I read, or should I say, I reread some of his books again over the last couple of years. Such wonderful, basic, core values. And the title of that book is Money, Sex, and Power, The Unholy Trinity of Western Culture. Well, that's my subtitle. His is just... uh, This is just money, sex, and power, as if that wasn't enough to grab your attention in the first place. Isn't it interesting that these three things are the gifts of God? Man, the Bible talks a lot about all three of them. Not necessarily in ways that our culture, our current culture, would clearly recognize, But the Bible does talk a lot about all three of these things. And why those three things? Because these are three of the strongest driving forces of being a human being. Sex. God created male and female, Genesis 1.27. Humanity's creation with clearly different genders, clearly different defined genders, that... Genesis 4.1, was designed for intimacy and fruitfulness. I mean, Genesis 1.27 is pretty darn close to the beginning of a pretty big book 
<laughs> and that's the precedent. I'm not going to list thousands and thousands of scriptures, though we probably could. I don't think I've done that, but just to give you an illustration of the fact that God wasn't afraid to talk about these things. They were God's good gift. Go forth and multiply. Another scripture that comes in between. God's intention for sex was that it was good. There's a whole book dedicated to, let's call it romantic love. You see, now we're starting to, to get into some of that awkwardness of how do we talk about this thing? The book of the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs, as it has been called, is a book dedicated to the idea of romantic love or intimacy or sex. It's a book full of it. It was the book of books to write a commentary on during the Middle Ages. It was the book to write on by the sexually repressed monks. There may be a little bit of irony in there somewhere. But their interpretation was, oh, this is about Jesus and his church. The problem is that an allegory only works because of the primary picture. In other words, you have to understand the picture to be able to say the picture represents something. If you jump straight to the represent something, ooh, missing the point. And they, they adamantly missed the point. The, if you're going to say that the Song of Songs is about Jesus and the church, I'm not convinced that it is at a secondary level. Then it only works as an allegory because of the passion, the rabid, radical, overwhelming passion that it talks about literally at the surface level. And the book of Song of Songs has a lot of great advice to give to couples to stay safe from getting caught up in the overwhelming passions of intimacy and love. And it also has a lot to say to married couples about rekindling and allowing that fire to burn again passionately. And that is the primary message of that book, whatever else comes out of it. And there's a lot that can come out of it. I don't think that they were totally wrong. But we find it really difficult to have meaningful, intimate conversations about sex. Well, sometimes... Uh, those conversations are not necessarily appropriate. Having a deep, meaningful conversation with a complete stranger about your sex life is possibly not the most helpful thing. Why? Because God created sex not only to be good, but to be profoundly intimate. And yet, it can be really difficult to have a profound, honest conversation with our life partners. And isn't that interesting, particularly in the context of a culture that is so obsessed with sex? I remember, no, I'll tell you that story later. That, 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 last, that last thing about how difficult it is to have a really meaningful conversation about sex actually undermines our perception that our sexuality and sex is God's good gift because we find it awkward to talk about. But sex is God's idea 
God's design and God's good gift. The second one is power. Genesis 1.26, another um, fairly early verse where the scripture tells us that God created us, male and female, to have authority, to exercise dominion, the scripture says. We were created as power wielders of God's authority. He delegated, and here we read Genesis 1.26 of the fact that that was part of his creation idea and that the exercise of authority is supposed to be (laughs) and is inherently in our nature and is supposed to be a good thing. It amazes me that as our culture has embraced tolerance as its ultimate value, that actually the exercise of authority in any context, good or bad, because all we hear about is the bad, has become the ultimate evil. I'm not sure that that's necessarily a problem with tolerance. It's a problem with our understanding, our definition of tolerance. But power and the exercising of power is inherent to being a human being. It's how we exercise and for what basis. God gave and delegated authority to humanity for the good of all creation. So the problem is not with having an exercising authority. It's with exercising it for selfish reasons. And then thirdly, money. Money is an expression of value. We read in Genesis 13:2. Now Abraham was very wealthy in livestock, in silver, in gold. Money was not something invented by the devil. Money is a representation of value, or it should be. Many of our uh, cultures, certainly in the Western world, are increasingly being based on the perception of value rather than on the tangibility of anything valuable. I'm not an economist, so I don't uh, presume to understand all of this, but I know the simple truth that 200 years ago, when if you were living somewhere that related to England, you could have a piece of paper that had written on it, I promise to give the bearer of this paper one pound of gold on demand at the Bank of England. Hence the name that that currency came to be called a pound. It was backed by something tangible. Most of that has gone. So, Money represents something valuable. Many of us think of it as representing our time, the fruit of our labors, but it represents something valuable. Abraham, the man of God, was very wealthy. That's what the scripture tells us. And it, uh, it tells us the heart that he used that wealth as an expression of what he valued. So what am I talking about? Genesis 14 verse 20 is the story of how Abraham, having gone and rescued Lot um, and, and a whole lot of other stuff, 
from the three kings. He had rescued him. He's on his way back to where he was staying, and he passes, passes quite close to uh, what is now Jerusalem. And the king of Jerusalem comes out, greets him, blesses him, and Abraham enjoys the blessing, enjoys the meal, and gives a tenth of everything he has to him. That guy's name was Melchizedek. He's an extraordinary character because he crops up there with no context in Genesis. Then he crops up in one psalm with no context. And then the writer of Hebrews makes a huge big thing about this Melchizedek person. But I don't want to touch too much on that except to say that Abraham responded to the blessing by giving a tenth of all he had. And by the way, that word tenth in Old English is the word tithe. That's all that word means, tithe, is a tenth. We've come to see it as, I don't know, some kind of religious thing. This attitude, this practice, and let's let's just think where Abraham is in the flow of the revelation of God. Is it before or after Moses? What does that mean practically in, uh, if you follow the, Paul's thinking in Galatians? He uses the same kind of logic in terms of timing. He asks the same question about circumcision. So who received this thing of circumcision? Oh, it's Abraham. So did Abraham come before or after Moses? And what do I mean by Moses? In this case, when it was written down and formalized in the Torah, there may be something in that sequence of events. And there is a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. For all of us, I suspect, there may be one or two exceptions, we've come to know Jesus from a very New Testament first context. And it's not, you don't normally, my wife loves to read novels, particularly whodunits. Even she doesn't start the book in the middle. She often starts it, goes hummity-hummity-hum and reads the last chapter. <laughs> I've never quite worked out whether that's impatience or because she already knows, knows the last chapter. I've, I've never quite worked that out. But who starts the book in the middle? And yet, actually, I know it was my, my experience I started my Christian walk getting familiar with the New Testament. There's nothing wrong with that. But actually, if all I ever do is read the New Testament, then I miss the point of a lot of stuff that assumes that I already know the Old Testament. When we read, and Jesus quoted the Scriptures, Paul said this from the Scripture, what did they think was the Scripture? We think of the New Testament. They hadn't written it yet. They were thinking of the old. There is a continuity from old to new. We assume that everything ended and then the New Testament came and it wasn't just, it wasn't like a minor upgrade. It wasn't a 1.01 release. It was a whole new 2.0, God 2.0. And his new revelation of him, same God, There is a continuity. Certain things have been fulfilled. And as we read the scripture, we see 
Those things that have been fulfilled talked about explicitly. Sorry if I'm belaboring this, but this is really important for understanding how the Bible fits together. We just assume that everything we read in the Old Testament is defunct and gone and done and dusted and... But there is a continuity. The New Testament tells us when something has been fulfilled. And because things have been fulfilled, the rituals surrounding the reality of, that were spelt out in the Old Testament have become defunct. They've become redundant. Why? Because they've been fulfilled. Not because they were a bad idea. But because they have been completed. If you went to study a subject somewhere and you worked really hard, you got all your books, you read all your books, you read through your notes, you wrote your exam, you passed the exam, you're now, you're now able to, uh, to, to, to find some employment, let's say, on the basis of that. And you just want to keep going back to your books, back to your books, back to your books, and never actually moving on. You're in trouble. Once something has been fulfilled, once you've written the exam, yes, you live out of the reality and the implications of it, but you don't keep going back to your books. I don't really know what that thinks. You live out of the reality. Um, hopefully that's the case. I was in IT before I came, and man, we had to do a lot of reading to keep up on whatever the latest technologies were. But you didn't read it just to say, oh, that was really interesting. There was too much to read. You had to be selective. And what you read, what you studied was so you could use it. So you could live in the reality of it. Why is there no more sacrificial system? Slaughtering of sheep and goats and oxen and pigeons and all these things in the New Testament. Because Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, has died in our place. You can't top that. You can't beat that. The death of Jesus as our substitutionary sacrifice is once for all. It happened once during one time, but has eternal implications. It happened for all people in all time and in all places. So there is no more sacrificial system, not because it was a bad idea, but because it has been fulfilled. This needs to be our basis for understanding how the Old and the New Testament fit together. I'd like to read to you a scripture from 2 Corinthians 8. Because this talks about all these things that, uh, that I'm, I've been talking about so far. And you're welcome to follow along, but I'm reading my own translation. Now, brothers, we want you to know the grace of God that has been given to the chosen of Macedonia. For during a very testing affliction, the abundance of the grace and the depth of their poverty abounded in the richness of their generosity. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability, by their own choice, they appealed and petitioned to us for this grace and fellowship to serve the saints. And not in the way that we had expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, 
and to us by the will of God, so that we urge Titus that just as he had begun this deed of grace, so he should complete it for you. So just as you abound in everything, in faith, in the word, in knowledge, and in willingness, and in all your love for us, so also abound in this grace. So what was this work of Titus, this, this work of grace that he talks about there? Well, if you've, if you've got an NIV or an ESV or one of these modern, they, they put you out of your suspense and they fill in the details for you. Because we read in Acts 24-7 that Paul was, uh, spent quite a bit of time gathering up a collection for the saints living in and around Jerusalem. Because, as we know from reading other sources like Josephus, who was a contemporary of uh, Paul, that there was a massive famine happening in Judea at the time. So those who were living in Jerusalem were starving. Not because they were lazy, but because the food just wasn't growing. And so the churches of, um, and he's writing to Corinth, let's, let's remember Corinth is in Greece, and he's talking about the saints in Macedonia. Well, Macedonia is where Philippi and Thessalonica, or Thessaloniki, uh, are. It's a, the, the, the landmass strip across the top of uh, Greece that joins Greece across on the other side to Turkey, or almost joins it. It's part of ancient Macedonia, is part of modern Greece. And he's saying that those guys, the guys who were living there, who he'd already talked about this, had already started this process. And he's using them as an example to motivate the Corinthians to do the same. So the, the, the Macedonians had started this thing, and it seems like they got into a situation where they really had a reason to bail and to, to say, okay, we've done what we can, but thus far and no further. Instead, they pleaded with Paul to continue to be able to add to the gift that they had already accompanied. And so, Paul instructs Titus, and it's fascinating, this is the first time that the, the person of Titus appears in the Scripture. You never hear about him in Acts, which is very interesting. He doesn't appear in 1 Corinthians, but he's really important in 2 Corinthians. How can I say he's really important? Why? Because he was the guy with the, the money bags. Paul had entrusted the collection of, uh, of the gift to Titus. Just a, a little aside there. So Paul uses that example. He says the Macedonians actually pleaded with him to continue to, uh, to contribute to this gift despite the fact that they were having like an ultra hard time. And what does this ultra hard time look like? Well, at least we know that it resulted in what the scripture calls extreme poverty. So they'd started off maybe in good economic times, and as the collection had gone on, they'd fallen on hard times. And not just as one or two individuals, but as a, as a, as a whole region. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? 
But their response to that challenge was to beg Paul to continue to be part of the process. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, remember, this is the same bunch of selfish, egocentric um, believers that he wrote to in 1 Corinthians. And there was probably at least one letter in between where he kept dealing with the same thing. And he commends them for their abundance. There is the most marvelous wordplay in, uh, in this passage that we just read. The word abundance is used four times in these seven verses. The first two talk about the Macedonians. And the second two talk about the Corinthians. And he's using the, 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 those four uses of this idea of abundance to join what the, what the Macedonians had been doing to who the Corinthians are and appeal to them to have the same attitude and then the same action as the Macedonians. So what is this abundance word? It means something like exceeds expectations. The Macedonians exceeded our expectations. They didn't, uh, they didn't give up. You Corinthians have exceeded our expectation. He gives them a whole long list there, I think in verse six. You exceeded, seven rather, you exceeded expectations in your faithfulness in the word, in your faithfulness in, in these things, in those things. You exceeded expectations. You've responded to 1 Corinthians so well, beyond our expectations. You've, now, I want to add to that grace, that that incredible gifting you have in the ministry gifts and the gifts of this, I want you to add to that even more. Excel in this too, that you also participate willingly, joyfully, abundantly, excessively beyond our expectation in this grace of giving. So what are the life lessons that we can learn from this. In fact, Paul sums it up very nicely at the end of the next chapter of 2 Corinthians. He spends the whole of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 talking about not just the, the, the general, he's not just boasting about the Macedonians and their generosity, but talking about the, the principles and the attitudes that the uh, Corinthians had embraced to bring them to this place. So, 2 Corinthians 9, I'm just going to read verse 6 and 7. Now the point is this, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one should give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or from compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. As life's principles go, this one's uh, pretty clear. The images of sowing and reaping. So we, at the, the, the end of last year, I cleared a patch of ground uh, just out the back by my kitchen, and with the help of my green-fingered mother-in-law, we plant, planted a whole, lot of, uh, a whole lot of seeds of various kinds, stuff that we wanted to eat. If I had just prepared the ground in fact, I've, I had done it once before and I'd prepared the ground and we'd never got to the planting. What grew? Did carrots and pineapples 
and gym squash grow. The weeds had no problem finding nice, juicy, fresh, turned-over soil and making the most of it. But this time, when we planted the seeds that we wanted to grow, they did grow because we had planted the seeds. And this is the picture. I must say that there was a couple of things we planted that I wish we had planted more of. And that's also part of, part of, his, uh, of his picture here. We can't sow three seeds and expect to get 20,000 kilos of mealy meal back. We need to sow in proportion to what we hope to reap. Obviously, there's, there's the wonderful reality that seeds are not fruit. But seeds planted in their soil produce fruit. So there is this picture of, of sowing and reaping. Our attitudes dictate our actions. Our, the sowing is our attitude. When our attitude is, oh, well, I'll give this a try and see what happens, and we sow sparingly. We cannot reap abundantly. So our attitudes dictate our actions, and our actions determine our future. I'm going to live for Jesus. But actually, I make no effort to get to know him, know his scripture, pray, fellowship with other believers, just keep living my own life. I show sparingly. My attitude says there's not much there. My attitude determines my actions, and my actions determine my future. No sowing means no reaping. In what area of life? In every area of life. So what does God want from us? And I am drawing this to a conclusion. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. That amazing passage about, the, about Jesus' resurrection and what that means for us. But whenever all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. In order that, and this is the only important part of the verse for what we're talking about now, in order that God may be all in all. God's plan is to be all in all. That passage in 1 Corinthians talks about everything that Jesus started and has put in place and is, is wanting to bring to conclusion, but the conclusion is that God may be all in all. What does God want from you? He wants to be all in your all. He doesn't want to be the appendix. He doesn't want to be, you know, the last bit of the book, the afterthoughts, the bits that didn't fit in the rest of the book, not the appendix, or here or wherever it is. <laughs> he doesn't want to be the plan B. He doesn't want to be just part of our lives. He wants to be all in all. He doesn't want to be one of a number of voices in all of our lives. He wants to be the primary voice in all of our lives. And he doesn't just want to be the primary voice in certain areas of our lives. He wants to be the primary voice in all areas of our lives. He wants to be all in all. And guess what? 
He's not going to give up until he is. <laughs> and not just with you and me, but with all of creation. So how do we need, how do we respond to that? Well, from this scripture, it tells us that even the Macedonians who you were saying were amazing, he commends them for going beyond expectations. Why? Because they gave themselves first to God. Many of us battle around this issue of finances, tithing, and the church. And part of the reason is because we don't give ourselves first to God. We want to know about the, the, the church books, and you're welcome to. We want to know about what's going to happen with the money. We want to know about... I remember talking to um, a fairly wealthy businessman who, you know, whose uh, tithe could probably keep the, the church going on its own. And he hadn't understood this. He believed that it was still his money and he had the right to do with it as he saw fit. Malachi 3, which I think is my last scripture. Well, it is now. <laughs> Malachi 3. It's an incredible scripture. It is the only time where God says, test me in this. And see if I'm not faithful to my word. What's he talking about? Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. So what's, what's the picture? How, what does it mean literally before we can apply it? Well, in ancient Israel, when this was given, you lived in an area and your tithe, the 10%, the first 10% of what God gave you, you brought to a tithe barn, a storehouse. So if you were growing uh, maize or wheat, the first 10% of what you harvested, you brought to this barn, this storehouse. And you gave it to that, the local storehouse. You didn't, when you had a bumper crock, say, I'm going to go around the country and give, you know, give my tithe to um, especially needy um, areas. That sounds like I don't care about needy. That's not what I'm saying. This is about committing ourselves first to God. We bring our tithe to the local storehouse. We give it to God. Why? Because we give ourselves first to God. That's the exceeds expectation. I told you this is going to be a slightly awkward conversation. So what is it that God expects from us? What is this whole giving money? What does the Bible have to say? Well, it has to say a number of things. It has to say that tithing still exists. And actually, God gives you 100% of everything you earn. When we don't give ourselves first to God, we miss that fundamental fact. And he gives it to us as stewards or to steward, and he wants to bless you. So the fact that God has given you 100% of your income doesn't mean you're not allowed to have any fun with what God has given you. God is the author of every good and perfect gift. But we do use our money as good stewards. And he does require of us that we live by faith 
by giving the first 10% to him. So what does that look like? Well, for me, that looks like this. When my salary arrives in my bank account, I use internet banking, the first thing I do with my long list of um, beneficiaries is I find my tithe, I put my tithe in, and I say process. And my bank makes it really different. I've got to click the button like three times before it actually takes the money. So there's way too many options to, to back out at the last second. And then I pay my lights and water, school fees, the other necessities of life. How do I do that? How do you do that? By faith. Believing that God is able to do more with me and more with my 90% that I now have to steward than I can with my 100% and maybe not the blessing of God, but certainly not having God. That's not all God has to say about, uh, about money. On top of the 10%, he talks about offerings, free will offerings. If you've ever read your Old Testament, you will have heard this phrase over and over again, free will offerings. That's not as, well, you could do tithes or you could do free will offerings or you could do almsgiving, which is the third group, giving to the poor group of, um, uh, of financial uh, generosity that the Bible talks about. It doesn't talk about either or. And it doesn't say, oh, you can give of your time and then you don't have to give of your money. Or you can give of your skills then you don't have to give, have to give of your money. God wants to be all in all. Can I just point out, this, this isn't manipulation. If I don't share this with you, I am withholding the blessing that God wants to give you. Notice we haven't waited till after the sermon to take up the, the, tithe, the offering. Why? Because I don't want to manipulate you. I want you to walk in God's abundance. My testimony and the testimony of many other people here watching online today is that they have tested the Lord in this and seen that he is good. So how do you get maybe from where you are to where God is calling you to be? The same way you get anywhere in Jesus, by faith. What is the word of God? What are his promises? Are you prepared to accept it? Or do you want to find 20,000 excuses? If you genuinely don't understand, come and talk to us. That's cool. We can go through the scriptures together. But if you're finding excuses, you're not hurting me, the institution of Venture Church. You are hurting yourself because you're cutting yourself off from the blessing of God. Awkward conversation. But I want to see you free. And I want to see you thriving, exceeding expectations in the fullness of God. Can we stand? I'd like to challenge us and lead us in response to what God has been saying. I could have said so much more about so many other practical things, about so many other theoretical and scriptural things. Please, please don't use that as an excuse 
to not respond to God, press in with the things of God. Because if you're looking for excuses, you will miss God. If you're looking for faith, then God's already waiting to grow it in you. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that our, our culture makes this a difficult conversation to have. We recognize that this, is, uh, this really cuts close to who we are. But Lord, we want to respond to you in faith. We want you to be our all in all. We do want your blessings, and you want to give them to us. Thank you, though, for telling us what blocks us from receiving your fullness. Thank you for telling us what enables your blessing. Thank you, Lord, that we can stand in faith. The many, most of us, <laughs> have responded to you in faith around this issue, who sorted it in our hearts many years ago. But Lord, I pray that you would encourage all of us to increase our generosity, to exceed expectations. And so, we commit ourselves to you. We commit ourselves to living our lives your way and so to allow you to be our all in all. And we trust you for your blessing to be a blessing. We give ourselves to you and not in blind but in simple obedience, we choose to do what's right. And we choose to bring to you the challenges that that can, can produce in us. So we choose to put our faith into action. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope that it was a blessing to you. If you want to connect with us further, log on to our website, venturechurch.co.za or connect with us on our various social pages, Instagram and Facebook.